Hey everyone, before we get started, I have a big announcement to make. Since 2015, I've been documenting and archiving the lives and successes of Baltimore's black artists, entrepreneurs, and social innovators. Fans of the podcast have stuck it out with me, some of you being here since day one, like my good buddy Nate. Thank you, Nate. I've also had people who have helped me out along the way. There are so many to name. Uh, Kirk, Tim, Jermaine, Honestly, a lot of my guests, because without them, I would not be here in this position about to give this amazing announcement. You joined me on my Road to 100 journey and sat through the countless Instagram reels I made, which looking back is something I never thought I'd do. Now in 2022, almost seven years later, I'm announcing a partnership with Baltimore's public radio station, WYPR. They'll be distributing the podcast on their rebranded podcast platform, Your Public Studios. The podcast format will stay the same, but my production schedule will change. A lot of work goes into each episode, and I want to continue giving listeners that same level of care. With increased distribution, more people will be able to listen to the podcast, and who knows? There may be some sponsorship opportunities in the future, and from there, the sky's the limit. As you've done so faithfully these last seven years, I hope you continue to stay tuned. This is just the beginning. Now, on to the show. This is Local Color, a Baltimore podcast, a show dedicated to Baltimore's black artists, entrepreneurs, and social innovators using their talents to make Baltimore a better place. I'm your host, Jason V, and on the show today, artist and quilter Stephen Towns. In the last three years and with the help of those around him, Stephen has established himself as an artist to watch and he's just getting started. His portraiture and quilts are magnificently constructed and if you look closely, little details and motifs tell a larger tale of his life and lives of the African diaspora. Art is a lot like the stock market. You may think that's a stretch, but follow me for a moment. When you don't have a lot of money, it's basically pointless to invest in stocks or crypto the way it'd be pointless to try and buy yourself an expensive piece of art. It's nice to have and it sets you up for long-term investments, but you need that money now. When you start to make a little more, it makes a little more sense. You begin to read up on the latest trends and news in either industry, talk with friends, and even consult the help of professionals so you can make an educated and fiscally responsible decision. But where I think art and the stock market really overlap is the pit you feel in your stomach when you watch a stock do phenomenally on the stock market. A few months back, that stock was dirt cheap and you definitely could have invested, but for whatever reason you didn't. Now you're kicking yourself because if you would have just thrown a hundred bucks at that stock, you could have cashed out and been on a boat somewhere sipping a cocktail and getting a tan. Art is just the same. You went to an art show four years back and saw the work of a struggling and fledgling artist. It was good and the art was cheap, but for whatever reason, you didn't buy a piece. Now it's 2022 and that art is worth tens of thousands of dollars and the creator of that art is an artist with a capital A. After years of work and sticking it out in the ever-fickle art world, Stephen Towns is the artist everyone wishes they invested in years ago. I caught up with Stephen as he was coming off the first leg of a tour for his latest exhibition. How are you feeling now that you're like a week or two out from your exhibition up in Pittsburgh? I'm feeling very relieved that I've completed the work and that it's up because it's been a very stressful period making this work just because of coronavirus, the pandemic and all that sort of comes with that. So I'm very relieved and the show looks beautiful. 
and um, I've been getting a lot of good reception. So it it, it puts me in a, a good place in my mind right now. Can you guess, or if you know ex the exact number, how long the production process that is all of all of the art putting up the installations all of that stuff how long did it take from start to finish like was this a, a few months or a year in the making so for me personally i started this work um over a year ago i think in 2000 i started some pieces i'm sorry not 2000 <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what year it is right now. In 2020, I started and then um, I made work. Then I took a break and made some other pieces. Um, so it's been about a two-year process. And then the museum does stuff on their end. They um, create the plans for the layout. Um, and the curator, Kololo Luckett, um, actually designs how the work fits into the space and the text. So it's a whole involved process. I think sometimes people don't realize, even for me, like moving stuff is, if you don't like moving a house, then you should not be an artist who exhibits because you're always in a constant state of moving, whether it's moving to have the work photograph or moving to have the work um, ship to museums like it's a it's a whole process it's actually kind of interesting that we're talking because i feel like we have known each other for a very long time because my sister is best friends with your husband jermaine and we will like see each other out a lot but um like only a few times have we ever had in-depth conversations so i appreciate us uh having this conversation now but something that i did notice when we were up there in um pittsburgh like talking to you now you're very like calm and relaxed, but during the exhibition, I, I was telling Jermaine, like it was the most animated that I have ever seen you. And I just thought that it was really cool to see you just kind of turn it on for your exhibition. Can you tell me about like the state of mind that you get in when you are turning it on, uh, so to speak? I mean, at one point I used to work out. I'm not really that person anymore, but it's sort of that same state of mind that I put myself in. I did Toastmasters for a long time. I grew up very shy. I didn't talk. And so I knew that in order to be able to communicate what I'm doing as a, a professional artist, I needed to learn how to speak. And I took Toastmasters. And so I learned various things through my um, Toastmasters meeting. And when... Um, right before you know the people come in from sort of preparing myself the whole time i make sure i have enough water so that my voice is as clear as it can be i have a throat drop and then i do some sort of like vocal exercises to get because i as you know i'm not like a person that talks a lot <laughs> so i put myself in that mind and then i'm steven the artist because you can't have that personality if you are making the the maker because it's a long sort of slow process. And so I have to switch on into this um, animated person when I'm on stage or doing Zooms or presentations. Where are you from and uh, what was it like growing up as a child child in uh, in your hometown? Yeah, I grew up in a small town called Lincolnville, South Carolina. 
It's right outside Charleston, and um, I am one, the last child of 11 kids. Um, we grew up in a small house. I would sort of, reflecting now, I would say I grew up in a lower income um, home, um, and I grew up in a very sort of strong um, religious upbringing. My mother was Jehovah's Witness, and so um, all, of thing, all of the things that go with that sort of went into me. Um, and I, like I said, I was not a very outgoing person. Um, I was very quiet, very shy. Um, the kids that were teased, did you see in TV shows and movies? That was me. And so <laughs> I sort of went into myself, um, and, um, I found my confidence in making art. And so that's always been a thing that has been encouraged by my art teachers throughout grade school. So it was the one thing that sort of sustained me. Do you feel like you're just quiet because there was just always so much noise going on and you just felt overstimulated? I mean, it could have been that. Um, I think part of it is just, I think so, some things can be learned and some things are just natural. And I think I'm just naturally an introspective sort of Aquarius person. Um, now that people, I've never been into signs but when I hear people describe Aquarius I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, that's me. And so I think part of it was intuitive. And then part of it was just um, um, being um, black in the South, being gay in a, in a Jehovah's Witness household where you know, uh, where you learn soon that that's not something that you should be um, and just um, a lot of the stuff, like being raised Jehovah's Witness, you are sort of ostracized in school because you're not allowed to celebrate holidays and they're just something, you're not allowed to stand for the ple Pledge of Allegiance. So you're automatically different um, as soon as you hit grade school, kindergarten. I, I knew as soon as I hit kindergarten that I was not like the other kids. Um, so that sort of for me, I think that was the catalyst that sort of made me be the shy person that I was. Hmm. As somebody who grew up in that culture, and I don't know if it's uh, something that you are still a part of and practice today, do you feel like generally that Jehovah's Witnesses are just misunderstood? I think that any sort of religious organization cannot be understood unless you are in it. And I think that um, unless you are in um, or become involved, then you just don't get it. Um, and so I think that's how it is. I'm not a part of it now. Um, and uh, I think that um, unless you are a part of it, I, there's a lot of things about Catholicism that I don't understand. There's a lot of things about Judaism that I don't understand because they just weren't um, religious practices that I was able to um, sort of delve into. And I think if you're not in those spaces, it's hard to sort of understand some things that go on within those um, institutions. Something else I want to talk about, because you are from South Carolina, the impact that the Gullah and Geechee culture has had on your family's life. So for people who don't know, uh, the whole Gullah region goes from about North Carolina all the way down to um, to Florida. What is Gullah Geechee and what impact has that culture had on your family's life, if any? 
Kawakichi culture is sort of a um, merging of English and African cultures because a lot of those, uh, a lot of the people, I mean, Charleston is one of the main ports for the Middle Passage. And so a lot of people have been able to sort of retain the language and cultures of various African countries that they come from. Um, and so there is a particular dialect um, and way of uh, speaking that's part of that. And um, to sort of be completely honest, it is um, was born in 1980 um, in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. I think a lot of people don't realize that um, anything that was sort of regional, like a regional accent, um, mm -hmm. a regional way of eating is sort of looked down upon. It's not until Instagram and people are talking about how proud they are of being black that I think um, other cultures have embraced their culture. And the same goes for, um, I think, being Gullah Geechee. Um, during that time period, um, having the accent was sort of looked down upon. So, and I am from sort of, I'm not in Charleston, I'm away from Charleston. <laughs> it's really difficult for me to say that how much of an impact it had on me. It wasn't until like the show Gullah Gullah Island came on that that culture has been embraced. And I think culture in generally embracing one ethnicity in America, the um, pride in it is very recent. And I think a lot of times because of social media, we don't realize that a lot of this stuff was ostracized before then. Do you not think that? Uh, I do, but I, I, so I grew up in, you know, Baltimore, Maryland in the nineties. I was born in 1989. For me, the ostracization really just came from uh, my sister and I growing up out in Baltimore County and really not having, if I could say a connection to like the more, shall we say, urban aspects of black life and black culture. So for me, I was always trying to like fit in and wanting to be a part of a larger group, but I was always told no. So for me, I guess my my exposure, that was like my ostracization. And I think now the, I guess the comeuppance or like the validation that I have received is like now it's cool to kind of be weird and a nerd and quirky and like within the black community now it's really cool to like anime and be a cosplayer i mean i remember when i was in middle school i used to skateboard and i got like mercilessly picked on and bullied for it and then now black kids are like skateboarding and like unironically shopping at hot topic and like i mean going so yeah. far as like painting their nails and stuff like that and for me like if I did that stuff back when I was their age in like middle school and high school, I dead ass would just, I just would have gotten my ass beat, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think that for me, that was my, um, that was my version of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that um, when I think about it, it wasn't until like the early two, though this is just me speaking as somebody who was sounding old, but it's in their forties, <laughs> but I feel like um, it wasn't until the early 2000s that people started really embracing their own cultures. And it was like the Erica Badus and the Jill Scotts 
when we when black people started um in my time period started embracing their africanness within themselves as a whole like that for me it feels like that's when that started and of course the whole lgbtq um community embracing themselves um i think some of the hall markers were like um ellen degeneres and rosie o'donnell like those were sort of the first people that i remember sort of embracing it and then we also i'm going on a tangent but i also remember the ricky lake show very being very important and embracing um being gay embracing being um weird and i feel like i don't know if people that are younger than me have that perspective of like being proud of yourself sort of is a new um a new thing it wasn't always like this before the internet so let's talk about your time at university of south carolina which is in columbia south carolina you got your bfa in studio art uh, my first question is um did you choose university of south carolina because you wanted to get away from lincolnville yet still be close enough to home um, it, well, this is also a sort of a roundabout thing. So the first college I actually started was called Coker College, and it's in a small town called Hartsville, South Carolina, actually, um, not very far from Columbia. Um, and um, I would say because I was like the second person to go to college in my family, I didn't know how to go to college. I didn't know how to make sure that I had enough money to be in college, managing time and um, uh, having a job and stuff like that. So I spent like a year at Coker College and I left because it was just, uh, I didn't know how to be at college, I don't think. And then I worked, I went back home, worked for a year and a half. And then I applied to University of South Carolina because I was getting exhausted um, from just working retail and working in restaurants and just feeling like there was no path for me. Um, it just got to be too exhausting and I felt like college would save me again. And um, the University of South Carolina was one of the biggest or is like one of the biggest colleges in South Carolina. It's either that or Clemson University um, and Columbia was closer to home. I was more comfortable with it. And I would say that it helped me at that time period. Um, like I was mentioning, it was the sort of the flourishing of the um, Black sort of neo-soul movement. And so there was this embracing of Black culture um, that was during that time period and that was there. I was also able to find other Black gay people like me there. Um, and just being in school and um, being able to sort of to have a studio space and make art again. It was very refreshing. Um, I felt like I flourished um, there and learned a lot about myself um, and about the work that I make. And that was uh, a lot of times when people see my work, they see this gold leaf and they see these halos. And that's where a lot of that work was born out of. My professor at University of South Carolina was very much interested in um, Renaissance artwork and us recreating this artwork. And that's how I began to um, adopt that style for my own work, because I wanted to show um, 
black people in these regal images that I would see in the history books and that I was slowly learning how to make um, by having a teacher that taught us how to do that. It was something I didn't know how to do before. During your time at University of South Carolina, you know, we all go back to home um, once the semester is over or once the school year is over. Did your friends and family notice like a marked change in you between your first year, like going off to school and then coming back in like for a summer or, or winter break? I mean, that seems so far away that I don't, I can't even really remember. I just remember just being happy that I was away and that I was able to explore who I was there. And then I graduated and I had to come back home. And then it was like what I was running away from, I came back to as soon as I graduated because I was learning how to be in college and be in college and enjoy being in college, but I still couldn't escape sort of how to sort of get ahead. I didn't have those um, extra steps. And so um, as soon as I graduated, I, I mean, I continued to make art with whatever I could, but Again, it was that cycle of working in retail, working in factories, working at a medical university, doing just odd jobs here and there. And so it was sort of a, a never ending cycle of going from this job to that job to this job and never a job that was going to make me lots of um, or make a sustainable living. And I think that's why people are afraid to have kids go into art because if you don't go in there with that sort of mindset then it can be a challenge when you leave and you can sort of feel lost in the world so is it those opportunities for work that motivated you to move to baltimore was it the art scene or were you just really ready to get out of lincolnville because it seems like lincolnville was like your quintessential small town in the American South where everybody knew everybody and everybody was always in your business? Well, I mean, I had, so I had gone, I had worked um, in factories. I had worked at an after-school program, which was a really amazing creative experience, but I didn't get paid enough money to live. Um, and then I ended up working at a medical university um, doing purchasing, which is a very sort of boring, mundane task. And um, uh, 2008 hit, there was a recession and everybody was losing their jobs. I knew I was on the chopping block because I was at an office job. And if you are at an office job and you are the last person to get hired, you are usually the first person to get fired. And so that happened to me. And I was looking for work in South Carolina and I just couldn't find anything. And I had a friend that lived here in DC and um, I asked to stay with him and was sort of couch surfing for a while. And um, it took me about a year and a half to find a job, two years to find a full-time job. I ended up working at Maryland Institute College of Art, but that was really sort of why I came. It was sort of the same migration that many black people have had from the South. You're trying to find a better way of life um, and for me, it's worked that out now. It was a, it's a, it's a, it was a long process. It wasn't sort of this um, quick. I'm gonna leave here and things are gonna be all right. For a long time, it wasn't good. Um, but um, 
it's sort of these challenges that I guess makes one even stronger. When you think about creatives, you know, artists, like movie directors, even actors and actresses and stuff like that, really just any famous person, people think that like stuff just happens overnight. So when you when you see like somebody that you look up to, you're like, all right, well, I'm gonna look up their Wikipedia page and, and like see what they did and like what decisions they made to get to where they are. And maybe I can make those same decisions, too. And a, a common theme for a lot of these people is like life was incredibly difficult and hard for them. And like you said, it was the, like that slow, laborious process of trying to figure out what worked for you at the same time trying to find something that you could stand to do long enough so that you could actually you know eat and pay your bills and then eventually you get to a point where you're able to do what you want to do or you find something that you'd like enough that you can do it and then work on your art or work on your craft or your hobby on um on the side before i get into my next question i i kind of have a two-part question for you my first question is how did your family respond to you leaving and, and did they feel like you were kind of betraying them or leaving them behind? And then second, can you just give like a brief timeline from um, your time working at Micah up until you've started, you started gaining more traction in your, um, in your career? Yeah, I, I don't think that my family thought I was betraying them. I think they were shocked that I was going to, I, I mean, I've lived other places. I've lived Virginia Beach. I've lived with family the whole time whenever I moved. But when I was making my move to Washington, D.C., I was staying with a friend. So they were like, well, what is that? How is that going to work? And it was very, I mean, D.C. is not an easy city to live in. And the D.C. that I moved to in 2008 is drastically different from the DC that I drive through now. It is amazing how much um, it has changed. Um, and so they were scared for me. I mean, this was the first time that I was exposed to gunshots, hearing gunshots outside and me not being a, a city savvy person um, and living in the hood, it just was, it, it was a weird combination, but it was definitely a growing experience for me. And I did sort of feel a, a, a sense of independence. But again, it was it was a very hard um, time period in my life. And um, so for about two years, I had been looking for work. Um, and I eventually um, stayed with um, assist my sister and brother-in-law in Maryland. And I'd been looking and I was working odd jobs here again. It was that same cycle that I was trying to escape in South Carolina. Um, at that time period, I would apply to temp agencies and then just have a job here, have a job there for a week and a half or two weeks. Um, and then I was um, the last job that I remember I had before Micah was Planet Fitness. <laughs> And I was doing the overnight shift because I was thinking about maybe I just have to go back to school because I'm not finding a job to make money. Um, and then like two weeks after I got my job at Planet Fitness, I interviewed for an assistant in the Office of Community Engagement at MICA. 
Um, and I got that job. So it was funny because the day before I started MICA, the, my first day at MICA, I had to stay up all night because I worked the overnight shift at Planet Fitness. So I worked the overnight shift at Planet Fitness. And then I went home, changed clothes, and then went into MICA. Um, and then it was all sort of God working for me because I was able to find an apartment in Baltimore right near Micah. And that is ex the exact moment that my car went out and I didn't have a car to drive. Um, so things just started so sort of um, working out and I stayed there for eight years. Um, I worked with a lot of students, faculty and staff members. Um, doing community projects around Baltimore. And this was how I was able to learn about the city, learn about the injustices in the city, the history of the injustices in the city. And during that whole time period, I was also making artwork and trying to show my artwork. One of the first local places that allowed me to show artwork was um, um, Station North Arts Cafe, Kevin Brown's space and um it'd be me and um my husband Jermaine like helping to um advertise my work so we were sort of a, we were a good team I would make the work um and he would teach me how to use social media and how to advertise my work and we just kept doing that for a very very long time I think sometimes it looks automatic but a lot of this stuff was like very sort of labor intensive so I want to start talking about your art now and, and the process behind the art. So your, your last three solo shows have been outside of the DMV, um, Los Angeles, New York, and now your current show, the one that uh, my, my wife and my sister and I went to, Declaration and Resistance, and, and that's at the Westmoreland Museum of American Art up in Pittsburgh. What does it feel like to have a broader audience outside of the DMV, and um, how has that impacted how you make your art i mean i just feel grateful i feel grateful that the work that i'm making is able to expand and i feel grateful that these all of these people like my work and that there are so many people that get it they understand it um it's just a, a feeling of gratefulness because there's been so, just a really long period of me for, of just uh, pain is not the word, but it's just hard work all the time. And so whenever I'm able to get an opportunity and an opportunity to expand, um, to grow, um, I feel grateful for it because it's been um, a long time sort of in the making for me. And um, I, f I feel honored to, to have my work displayed against um, people like Carol Walker. It's just like it's unbelievable to have work in the Smithsonian. At times, it just doesn't feel real. <laughs> yeah, I'm. Um, I'm sure it doesn't. But you know, the good thing is, is that it is real, and it's the result of uh, all of the work that you and and, and Jermaine have put into it. Uh, and speaking of that work, I, I do want to talk about 
the relationship between artists and um, the labor, invisible labor, some would say, performed by, you know, their managers, uh, their assistants, and, and even patrons, people who want to see you succeed. Um, so my first question, I guess, will be for your most recent exhibition uh, at the Westmoreland Museum, did you have assistants helping you? And then the second question, how much trust do you have to place in those people doing that invisible labor for everything to work? Yeah, so um, with my painting, I think a lot of people don't understand is that the the early history of art is people like Rembrandt and everybody had apprentices working under them and that is sort of the way people learn how to do different techniques, how to mix paint. And so that's the history of art. Now there's this sort of um, autonomy and individuality about it. Um, for me, um, with my paintings, I'm, I do the work in all of my paintings just because I don't really know how to teach someone to um, do what I'm doing when I'm, I'm painting and have the style that I want. But um, quilting can be communal because I have learned how to quilt um, and quilting is such a long sort of laborious process and there are steps, I'm able to have steps um, and work with people. So it's not just them working on it. It's like we're all working together in the same um, space. So um, previously um, I had a wonderful assistant um, and then this time I had two really great assistants, Christy Taylor um, and um, Ann Weaver, my previous assistants who I work with was um, Hillary Cyrus. And um, they, I mean, they just add their own sort of expertise to things and really help me to um, when I sort of say, this is what we, I want to do today, let's try and get it done. And because um, they have learned my process, it's, it's sort of a give and take. I learn from them, they learn from me. Um, and it's 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 fun because like when I'm making my paintings, it's just about me being by myself, being by or with myself. And um, some of the other sort of labor that people don't, I think, um, recognize is that I have an amazing photographer, Joseph Hyde, who I have um, photographed all of my work. And um, the me working with Kalolo Luckett, who was the curator for um, this exhibition, um, she and I would often have conversations and sort of bounce ideas off of each other, of each other. And she is actually the person who introduced me to the idea of painting a portrait of Elsie Henderson um, and um, doing a portrait of and doing some work inspired by Teeny Harris's photographs. So it's it's um, it's I've definitely built a, a a great community in developing this body of work. Now that your work has been quote unquote validated by the art world, and and I believe that that did start in uh, Baltimore with the BMA uh, putting your work up in their museum. Do you feel a certain pressure to continue with a certain art style or touching on a certain theme? Or do you feel like now you can do whatever you want and, and the art world will still watch? Um, I think there, I think if you're being practical, you do have to sort of keep a certain style. It's very difficult for music artists to switch styles and it's very difficult for art. Um, visual artists to switch styles once they've sort of created 
a, a mark for themselves. It's kind of like you have to, you need to keep it. Um, I think the thing with me is that I like what I'm doing now. I'm not bored with what I'm doing. What I'm doing is not easy. And so I can never really get bored with do, doing it. I can only get frustrated because of how much work it takes to do what I'm doing. Um, but I don't really get frustrated having to maintain my style or um, subject matter because I love Black people. So I'm going to continue to paint and make work about Black people. Um, I love painting. I'm going to continue it and I'm going to continue my style. I know some people deal with that, um, but for me personally, it's not something that I um, really worry about. Mm -hmm. um, it seems like when talking about the career and the life of an artist, work and labor and just kind of always rolling that boulder up the hill, it, it kind of seem that it seems like that's the general theme or motif of this type of type of life. Um, but can you talk about something that your average museum goer or even like art critic might not know or understand about the person making the work? I mean, just that um, we're people. I mean, and uh, to be an artist, you are, um, I guess you can be a little bit of an egotistical person because anybody that's in entertainment or doing something for a broader audience thinks their voice matters. Um, so there is sort of an eagle that, 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 that is there. Okay. And now that you mention it, I do want to ask you about that as someone who you know, your art is being bought and, and, and sold and you are definitely like successful now. How do you manage your ego and how do you not get a big head and just walk into museums or exhibitions and, and you're like, yeah, I'm Steven Towns. Like, don't talk to me. How do you manage that? Um, I don't feel, I mean, I spend a lot of time with my work. I'm married with somebody who will remind me of who I am. I think <laughs> that that helps and that I still don't, I can't have that ego because it's still hard for me to get opportunities. Um, and so like, there is no, I don't think that I, I can't have it right now because I'm still in a process of like, um, doing a lot of hard work. Um, I know I keep repeating that over and over again. Um, but because I am still in that place, I it's really difficult for me to have an ego. Gotcha. Like we, we talked about how, um, or I think Jermaine talked about how, like right before I was finishing this last um, group of paintings, I got COVID um, and I had eight paintings that I had to, needed to finish. And then right when I was feeling better to make these works, then something happened at, uh, in my studio where water was overflowing and the plumber couldn't come and fix it because I still had COVID and I had to figure out how to do that on YouTube and work on these paintings at the same time. So it's very difficult to um, have a um, ego when all of those things are sort of happening in the background, if that makes sense. Yeah, it seems it seems like for 
all of the external validation you might receive, you have people and things that happen that bring you back down to earth. Yeah. I still have some of the problems that people have that when you grow up um, from a lower income background, just because I'm living more comfortably doesn't mean other people that I know are living comfortably as comfortably as I am. So there are those other things, like I'm still a human being, if that makes sense. What advice would you give to younger artists that cite Stephen Towns as their inspiration? I would say um, make, what, make what you can with what you have. I think that is something that I wish that somebody had told me because, I mean, there were times that I wish I could make bigger and grander things and I just couldn't afford to. And so it's make the, make with what you can with what you have. Um, and, um, just learn to be kind to yourself when you think you haven't sort of reached that pinnacle yet, just be kind to yourself and just continue to work. My last question for you, um, what's coming up next for you? Are you still on like the exhibition circuit? Where were you, where will your career take you next? Who knows? Well, right now the exhibition at Green at, at um, Westmoreland is going to be traveling, so it's going to be traveling to Boise, Idaho, and Winston Salem, North Carolina. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that because I've never been to um, Boise, Idaho, or the Midwest, um, and Winston Salem is sort of like home. So I'm really excited about that, and um, I'm have some things and new ideas that I'm working out and I think that um, I just want to continue to flourish and to make beautiful work. Well, I have no doubt in my mind that you will definitely accomplish that. And uh, before we finish up, is is there anything you want to talk about that we haven't already gone over? I think I'm good. Awesome. Well, Stephen Towns, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk with you. Thank you. That was artist and quilter Stephen Towns. Check out his art and travels on Instagram at Stephen Towns. That's Stephen with a PH. His website is stephentowns.com where you can learn more about him and even buy puzzles that have his art on them. Please don't forget to subscribe, review, and rate the podcast five stars so you can help others find the show. I'm Jason V, and I'll be back with another episode of Local Color. Local Color.